Hi, everyone. Um, welcome back. Um, how many of you have been here all day looking glazed? Um, yes, starting to look tired. This is the after lunch session, so we will be gentle with you. We're all tired, but welcome. Um, for those of you are new, who are new, um, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on Wajak Noongar land, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, I am Shaheen, the CEO of the Museum of Freedom and Tolerance. Um, Invisible Ink is our flagship event, um, and as the name suggests, it is all about coming into large cultural institutions um, and really interrogating this idea of visibility, the stories that we see, the stories that we don't see, um, and, and, and asking ourselves some questions around what are you know, the histories we don't see and why, um, and how as um, people who visit museums, you know, people who um, visit galleries, we get information from you know, the display cases around us, but how we can think more critically about our local landscapes, our local place names, our local buildings, our local lakes, um, our local places of recreation and, and see them differently. And the, and the catch cry of Invisible Ink is see differently. Um, when you do see differently, um, you can be transformed and you can make change. And for those of you who were here this morning um, for the Sean Nanup session, you know, he said something really important, um, you know, that he talks about art and song and dance and language and story because art is the way we have this really multi-sensory appreciation for the world around us. Um, so it's not just see differently, it's feel differently and touch differently and hear differently and listen differently. He was sort of saying that just through sight, you know, we go about our everyday lives seeing about 10% of what we could possibly see, but, you know, through engaging all our other senses and connecting with others, we have this ability to kind of extend our sight um, and through engaging with the senses, we also have that, you know, these moments of empathy based on, you know, that shiver you get up your spine when you see or hear or feel something differently, which can catalyze you to make change. Um, something we're very interested in after all the storytelling this morning and this panel um, is going to speak to it beautifully. This panel is about imagining local landscapes differently through multimedia storytelling. Um, all of our guests here today um, have, have sort of this unique um, point of connection. They've dedicated themselves in their practice, um, be it through film, through research, through theatre, through, you know, digital mediums, to actually um, telling and making visible these very kind of unheard, unloved, unknown stories. And we want to explore um, in an informal kind of casual way, but you know, this idea of how the story connects to the medium and how it's the medium that really kind of, you know, makes people feel. Um, you, Poppy and Ian just told me a lovely story, which I think you'll share about how, you know, the people have reacted to your um, beautiful, um, you know, experience of Gallup. So um, I'll introduce you all briefly. Um, Samara King, um, thank you so much for joining us. You are a co-curator of the digital exhibition Always Wajamap and you worked at the WA Museum last year in order to do that and with the Rottnest Island authorities. So we're very um, keen to hear your story um, of how you found, you know, this kind of digital medium to tell this kind of very painful story of, of Rottnest Island and Wajamup and, and these sort of dual narratives um, and how you're 
work has kind of spoken to both, you know, sort of Aboriginal voices and white voices in that process. And um, Poppy Van Ord Granger and Ian Wilkes, thanks so much for being here today. The incredible creators of Gallup um, showing at Perth Festival currently, um, the story of Lake Monga or Gallup and the um, story that happened there um, during sort of colonisation, but also, you know, long, long history as all of our lakes have these, you know, very long history of stories. Lynette, Kuma and Denise, um, thank you so much. That was beautiful, your um, storytelling earlier today. Um, Lynette, it was a pleasure to sort of hear you talk about your experiences at these lakes and, you know, that many of us don't know the real stories of. So again, thank you for being here. Um, we're going to keep it casual. I'd like all of you to talk a little bit about of, uh, your work and also um, I'd like to think just about this idea of change and as an artist how it has changed you, to, why you do this work and how it has changed you and then we can kind of throw that out to the audience and talk about how your work changes them. Um, we're going to have a bit of a workshop. We're going to break. Um, we have such expertise in the room. I think we need to use it. Um, we have this 10 Things to See Differently project that we've just launched and we will carry into Heritage Week next month where we'd really like to put the question to you because you all live in suburbs and on roads and near lakes that you go jogging around and, um, you know, how can we take this information home with us? How can we start to see our own local landscapes differently? And I think um, I'd love us to sort of break into groups, talk through that and also have our experts sort of wander around and kind of, you know, prompt some questions if you are interested in knowing the history of your house or area or street or lake what can we do and how can we tell these stories um, so I think we're going to start with you Poppy um, and Ian um, I'll, you've got the mic um, to maybe just introduce your work a little bit and then we've got the video queued up when you're ready um, to play that so he's going to do that in the background Pop, do you, Ian, start. Kaya, um, so Carla began a few years ago when Poppy called me and said, what do you know about Lake Munga? Um, and the first thing that came to my mind was my dad's voice saying something bad happened there. As a kid, we would drive past the freeway and dad would always point out to Lake Munga and go, Nungas were killed at that lake when the Wadjalas first came here, when the white men first came here. So he'd always tell us his story and he would go, that's what happened, don't forget it. Always remember that, it's important. And so Dad would constantly be doing these things around the area of Perth um, and just teaching us little things at, at a time. And then it wasn't till you know, many, many years after, Poppy calls me and says, what do you know about Lake Munga? And that's the first thing I told her. I said, well, my dad told me there was a massacre that happened there and not many people know about it. And it's been hidden and it's been covered up through all the old journals and all the old records. And so I, that kind of sparked Poppy's kind of yeah, desire at, for this show. Well, Carla. yeah, at the beginning there was this um, Know Thy Neighbour project that International Arts Space was running, getting artists to find out more about where they lived. And I've been living near Lake Munga for a long, long time since we lived together. Um, lady in the audience. And, um, Does everyone in Perth know each other? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I'd worked a lot in regional and remote communities and when you go to those places, communities will often tell you about special places and stories. And I thought, how weird is it that I've lived next to this place and I know nothing about it. It's just a, a wildlife sanctuary, 
people go there to run and jog and ride bikes and have picnics. Um, and I'd worked with Ian before on a project with Community Arts Network in Narragin and that was about um, teaching Noongar students about language and dance and culture. And I loved working with Ian. I thought he was amazing at teaching people and, um, yeah, just bringing passion out of people for their culture. And so I had this idea of working with him to make a show. And at first I thought it would be like a school-based children's thing. But then when he told me what his dad said, it suddenly was like, <laughs> okay, maybe, all that. maybe it's like... not a kid's show. Maybe this is <laughs> something else. And then... Yeah, uh, Ian's dad, Ted Wilkes, is one of the elders that's guiding us and he and many others suggested we speak with Dawn and Leisha Eats um, because of her family connection to that place and then she told us this story and, yeah, it all went on from there. Now we've got uh, Uncle Daryl Kickett and Auntie Liz Hayden also guiding us on the project. Um, and more on the show itself, we... We don't just kind of really focus on the massacre itself. There's there's a lot of history that surrounds uh, Garlap, and Poppy and I have done you know many years of research, and we found some interesting stories that are quite positive, that are quite kind of connective and very um, got a good energy around them, and old stories from the 1830s when farmers and settlers were kind of around the area and there was still kind of cultural things happening around that. So it was an interesting time and. There's stories of Jägen and spear-throwing contests and, and Nungar's dancing around a piano and, and stuff like that. So we really wanted to inject a positivity first before we kind of speak too heavy about this massacre. So this show that we've created is quite um, fun, energetic, interactive, um, and it's an on-site specific work, theatre work, if you would, and we kind of guide the audience around a bit of the lake and... You know, the nature speaks for itself. The lake is a character. I play many characters in and out of the world of the 1830s and kind of we mould both worlds together, the world of the 1830s and, and the world of now because it's kind of hard to avoid the public when you're doing an on-site specific work. So there's joggers, there's riders, there's kids, there's dogs and they Channel somehow... Yeah, <laughs> Channel 7 weather crew walking, like, right past... Um, so those things are unavoidable. And so we, we really kind of set up a, a show that allows the audience to accept that, that those things are happening, but also accept that we're in a, we're in a weird kind of void world with, within the character, within the era of the 1830s. And that's what I think is quite powerful about this show, seeing those two worlds run uh, parallel within each other. So you get to see the effect of what happened way back then and how things are still just kind of happening in the modern world, people jogging past without that knowledge and knowing you're in that story as well. So, yeah. Anything else to add, Pop? We could talk forever about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you can keep talking. Do you guys, um, do you have vision? You want to, Zoe's putting yeah. a hand up. So maybe we'll um, show people a little bit more about Gallup <coughs> before we continue. We're going to go for a walk and I'm going to show you some stories of this place, Karla. We're going to use our imagination and we're going to, we're going to walk in two separate worlds. Mia Jinangumba, Tuankari, Bula, Ja, 
Tell me, why we're wounding, 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 later. Resting, resting, sleeping here. Hello. Um, how have... Um, I'm glad you pulled up this slide, Zoe. So this is the... Gallup team, so across the top you can see Uncle Daryl, Auntie Liz, Nan Doolan, Uncle Ted, and um, Nan Doolan's daughter, Glenda Kickett. Um, so the four elders there on the left, they've been guiding this project and making sure that we're safe in it. And yeah, they've just been amazing um, in holding this project. Um, and then uh, the other crew, you can see Sam Yombich, Pilot Kicket, who's our assistant stage manager, just underneath my photo. And Maitland Schnaz um, came on as a dramaturg. Clint Bracknell came on as a music dramaturg. Down the bottom, there's our stage manager, Mitch. Uh, Della Ray Morrison was a community liaison. Um, Chris Owen is a researcher and he's been really helpful in... Um, like, we did really extensive research with the State Records Office, but then he went through our script and made sure our footnotes were all, um, yeah, university-style, legit. Um, <laughs> which I think is handy because, like, we're, do we're doing this for Perth Festival. After that, we've got social impact goals that we're working towards that the elders have said, look, we really want a memorial at the lake to talk about the massacre. We really want this story taught in schools. Um, and we also want to promote the way that we've done this project really collaboratively over a long time. So, um, I can't remember what my point was, but... Um, that's okay. You've yeah. said that's a lot of things to, I think, unpick, and we can do that across the panel. Um, yep. You know, I'm interested in talking further about um, how truly collaborative this experience of theatre making has been, you know, in traditional art forms and more kind of Western art forms, that isn't the case. And, you know, the work that, you know, you and Ian are doing and Lynette and Denise are doing and Samara you have been doing as well is incredibly collaborative and, you know, the lines are not there as in, you know, things behind glass cases. You know, you've blurred lines um, in several ways between, um, you know, yourselves as collaborators and the historians, multidisciplinary, and also the audience. I mean, I'm quite interested to know, actually, before, and Samara, before we kind of hear your experience of how the audience has reacted so far to, to, to the performance. Um, it's been fantastic. The, the audience feedback we've been getting is um, kind of really great because... It's kind of how we want to end the show is to make sure there's this feeling of togetherness. And that last scene that is around the fire right there is just after we hear um, Nana Dolan speak about her grandmother talking of the massacre. And so we end the show with that and it's quite heavy and people don't know how to kind of absorb some of that kind of real heavy topic stuff. So we give them time, we give them space 
to kind of soak it all in. And, um, and then we yarn. So something that I've learnt over my years performing is whenever dealing with he heavy topics, we've got to yarn about it afterwards. You can't just go, okay, massacre story, bye, bow, good night, walk away. Um, it's vital that we sit down and you as an audience get the chance to respond and ask questions and share thoughts and feelings. So that is a vital part of the show. It's technically after the ending of the performance, but it's a vital part of the show. And so a lot of the thoughts and feelings that we get back from the audience is really what we're looking for. And so hearing some of the audience mention their thoughts and feelings and their feedback and what, what they can do to help or how, and, and the questions about what we're doing to kind of increase the awareness and stuff like that, it's been spot on and it's been great. Yeah, and I think even before the end, that whole 90 minutes of um, play and looking at different stories around that time is all about getting people's heart ready to hear that story so that they are feeling united and their hearts are open and they're ready to hear that. Mm. So after the show, there's the talk around the fire and then there's a 20-minute walk back with everyone as well. So, yeah, I think a lot of thought and care has been put into thinking about the audience and making sure they've got support, additional support if they need it, and that the team as well have got that additional support amongst each other, but also, like, if they want to see a counsellor because this is heavy stuff to be dealing with all the time, then that's there. And also having those elders, and we did a community consultation six months before starting this project so that people could tell us what they thought um, as well. That's really important. Mm -hmm. And um, so, Samara, just moving on in terms of your always Wajramap curation, we talk about heavy stories. There's not many stories more heavy than the Wajramap stories. So can I ask you to introduce yourself a little bit and um, how you got involved with this and um, what you've produced? Yeah, so um, my name's Samara King. I'm a Gurdjari woman originally from Broome. Uh, I came onto this project as... Uh, one of the emerging curators. So there was two of us, another one, Vanessa Smart. She's a Noongar woman. And uh, we were partnered, it was a, a WAM program, and we were partnered with the Rottnest Island Authority. So our project was um, already partly formed. We were supposed to do it on Watch em Up. But it, um, it was definitely one of the more difficult things that I've ever had to do. Uh, definitely trying to find that balance, as you guys were saying, between um, such a heavy history, but making it uh, consumable and for people to actually want to read and, and share, I think was one of the, the more difficult aspects. But I think um, creating that balance between um, talking about the wajak, uh, the countryside and the prison side um, kind of allowed a bit of a, a balance of the, the history there, yeah. And um, talk, a talk to me a little bit about where the project sort of, how the decision was made to create a, a sort of digital exhibition, if you like. <laughs> and well, that, <laughs> that was kind of taken out of our hands um, since we started in January last year and our contract was for six months. It was originally supposed to be um, an exhibition and the past ones have toured and um, gone around WA, but with COVID happening in March, 
um, just before we were supposed to go off to Canberra and um, develop our ideas further, uh, it shifted very quickly into uh, a digital exhibition. Uh, originally, we weren't even thinking we might have anything, but with my background in um, web development and comms, uh, we were able to get a website up, yeah, which was pretty fortunate. Mm. And um, do you think having these stories amplified sort of globally, because Samara, you've also worked with MFT in translating Always Wajram Up into a Google Arts and Culture exhibition, and one of the reasons we did that is because outside um, Australia, outside Western Australia, into Australia and in, into the world more generally, these stories are not known, you know, a people's concept of Aboriginal storytelling and culture is, is so different. How important is it to elevate these stories to a global stage, you know, through these digital mediums? Yeah, I think so important, especially with the Watch em Up story. Um, I mean, we take for granted that a lot of us know the history and, um, you know, the, the tragedy that happened there. But with so many tourists going there before, and even tourists from around Australia, they really just don't know anything. And um, I think it was really vital work to get that story told and share it with as many people as we could. So we have the website and there's also a couple of um, documentaries uh, on there, some short films that are on YouTube as well. So um, making it you know, as accessible as possible, I think was really important. And um, Lynette and Denise, um, your story, you have tirelessly gone around Perth talking to your story and I, th I think that can also be quite hard work. How has the book kind of relieved you of some of that, you know, personal responsibility to be there telling the story because people can, it is amplified, it is in the public discourse, um, you know, what has your process been in, in sort of taking this story to the world? Well, one good thing about the book is when people contact me and want to know something, I can just say, oh, <laughs> go, read go and book. have a look at the book. <laughs> um, I guess it all started as my PhD and um, one of the things elders said they wanted from it was a book. And so um, I actually wrote my PhD as a one half of it was the book kind of ready to go and the other half was the theoretical method, you know, side of how I went about it and how it compared to what other people had done. And that worked really well for me because I knew I would just never sit down for months and months and turn an academic PhD into a book. <laughs> um, so I was really happy to get it out there and really happy... I mean, I've had lots of positive feedback from the book. Um, I think people are really interested in the stories. I guess um, we probably get quite a lot of requests to come and talk. Um, and we can't, we do most of them, don't we? We probably do just about all of them. Just about all of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for the red carpet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what, what yeah. direction do you want me to go in with yeah. this? Well, I, I guess I'm keen to know, and, and you know, perhaps from Lynette, you know, that this experience of talking your story, um, you know, maybe dive a bit into, you know, is, is it something that is um, exhausting? You know, we talk about the labour of telling these stories, which is sometimes alleviated by having it online or having it in a book or having it in a performance. And, and Ian, for you as well, you know, there is so much labour required 
of, for voices of these marginalized histories to, to get up every day, even though it's hard, and tell this story. I'm, I'm interested in your perspective of, of, of how difficult it is versus how you know, healing and cathartic it is to be doing this work. Oh, you want me to talk? Yes, please. <laughs> oh, gee. Um, they want me to... Um, how, how to better... Is, is it um, healing um, or is it hard? Um, maybe it's just each note. <clears throat> it is a healing. Um... Yeah, it is a healing. It has to be a healing. I feel the healing here. Um, and I've spoken to a few people and said how it is a healing, especially when you take your childhood stories to children in schools, which I have. And to have those little children listen to your story, not being read from a book but told from out of your mouth, um, told by you because you lived and breathed it, and at the end of it, they are crying. Um, and that's what it's all about. You know, the saying goes, um, we have to start with our young ones. And that's how I like to start my stories and do my healing with the young ones. I've had that chance and opportunity too, by the way, working with the education department for 25 years plus. Um, but, um, yeah, and I still go around. I've been around to a couple of schools since the book's been written and published um, and telling my story. I um, need to come back. To, I will be coming back to Douglas, I think it is. Um, at a due date when they get back to me because um, that's so close to where the Shetton Park camp um, was laid out when, when I used to live there. Mm. Yeah, very much a healing. Uh, like I said, you know, we... Um, again, um, <clears throat> you know, you have the papers, you have your social media and all this and that, and as soon as something happens, oh, it's an Aboriginal... Um, so we, we, you know, we become visible then with the bad things. So it's about time that we had things um, come out about, you know, the positive things. Um, don't make us um, invisible. Make us visible. Have us as visible people, you know. Um, we're very multicultural now. You know, it's hard to find... <laughs> Honestly, it's hard to find uh, you sitting down with a, a family member and you say, hey, can you pick out some Nongag or Aboriginals? It's really hard to find, you know. Um, can you find me a white Australian? <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, yeah, it, it, yeah, our stories, these um, enactments and that, um, they have to be told because we all read about the things that's been done and published about what the... the um, these, uh, what do you call them? Um, <laughs> welfare department and... Uh, oh, I can't think of the name of them, people. Um, people who write up books about... Uh, dictation. You know, the, the people that dictate everything and they have it written in the book. You hear their stories, but you don't hear nothing of the people themselves. So, yeah. Um, because we have a voice and we are a voice. 
and it's time. You know, it's time for changes. This time, I'm sure a lot of there, you white fellas out there, really and truly want to know the true facts, you know, and, and have the two true stories to tell to your children. Because um, all I get out there is, um, and I hear, oh, get over it. Get over what? You know? So, yeah, the, they say that because they don't know from the people or they haven't heard from the right people. So, yeah, it's time for changes, definitely, whether it's by storytelling. Uh, everyone's a storyteller. Everyone has their own stories to tell. Well, it's time for us Aboriginal people, First Nations people, to tell our stories and to share our stories and to be connected with each and every one of us. Um, so I could just speak on that, you know, Arnie mentioned healing and I just want to speak about how we end our show at Karlap with Nan's story and yeah, so just within regards to making sure everyone's safe and protecting stories constantly being told and the weight that is held by me, mm -hmm. Poppy and Nan, Nana Dolan having to you know, constantly tell that tragic story um, has, has got a lot of weight, so it would be traumatic. So we've actually recorded an audio and Nan sits at the bench and it's played through the speakers. So that way she doesn't have to verbally tell the story every performance. And even though Nan has the resilience to be able to do that, we feel um, it's, it's uh, another option that is not only creative kind of in regards to the show, but it's also a way of protecting Nan um, with her heart to be able to kind of, and it's a big thing for her to sit there and hear her, hear her own voice. And sometimes her daughter has to sit in her place and hear her mother's story. So it's, and myself and Poppy, we're constantly hearing that story through the show. So it, it, it's, it does hold weight and it, it is heavy, but we find the best ways to protect ourselves and keep safe, um, checking up on each other, making sure we're all okay after hearing that story as well. And like I said, we have that yarn with the audience. That's not just for the audience, that's for us mob mm -hmm. as well. It's for us performance to sit and reflect and go, okay, that's the hundredth time I've heard that story, but it's still hitting me in the heart. So big things like that. And um, just back on the healing thing, Lake Munga now, Garlap, is now a place of healing for all of us. And so we always end at each performance knowing and telling the audience, this is not a bad place. Just because something bad happened here doesn't make it bad. We need to come together to heal it now and make sure that everyone has an awareness and we're working towards memorials. And I think Rottnest has the potential to be the same, but right now, the world that we're living in is, is just halfway there. You know, you've got your schoolies and your tourists just kind of constantly there, just putting a huge shadow over that, that possibility that is togetherness there at Rottnest and at certain other sites around Perth. And that's what we're pushing for over at Lake Munga and Karlap and anywhere else around Perth that requires the same treatment. Yeah, speaking to that as well, um, I think healing is definitely the goal on the island. But my experience there last year, um, and I don't know if you guys found the exhibition on your own, but 
it was um, buried and the story was not promoted through like WAM or, you know, RAA. Um, it wasn't uh, told as this piece of information that we needed to know. It's still very hush-hush. Um, it's quite backwards and I think that healing is, is still quite far for Watch em Up, unfortunately. I think um, Emma asked a great question at the end of the last session about, you know, how Wajalas, how, you know, white people kind of, you know, deal with these very dark and polarising stories, you know, with care, because some of us, many of us want to know, but are worried about this idea of, you know, re-traumatising and, and, you know, difficulty and and people don't know how to get to healing and um, marketing departments. I mean, we've had a chat about, you know, with the Rottnest um, Island situation, you know, marketing departments want to focus on quokka selfies and beautiful islands and pictures. You know, how, if you had to give a piece of advice, you know, in terms of this really deep storytelling work that you do compared to, you know, how local governments, you know, from a tourism point of view, how Western Australia can start to adjust the narrative that it tells itself and the rest of the world about, you know, being a, a fairly white, having a fairly white colonial history and beautiful beaches and quokkas and, you know, which are all fantastic. But Ian talked about walking in two worlds simultaneously. You know, what piece of advice would you give large institutions, marketing departments, Rottnest Island Authority in, in, in terms of going to the next step? Yeah, I think call it out whenever you can. I think the marketing team at RAA actually gets a lot of um, emails from people being like, you know, I was just on the island, where's your history? I want to learn more. Um, even when I was working there, we wear a, uni a uniform so people can identify us. And a couple of people actually came up to me, white people, and would just be like, um, where can I go to learn about the prison? There's nothing, there's no information there. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately, you have to actually seek it out for yourself. So I think just doing whatever you can to learn more um, is unfortunately the, the step you have to do. Yeah, it's not um, given to people, yeah. I think as well, like, talking about that knowing the truth feels so much better than not knowing, even if that truth is really heavy and dark and hard, it feels better. Like, Dool and Leisha Eats, after we did those first performances a few years ago, she was so happy. She said, this is one of the proudest days of my life. I feel so blessed. She was just so happy because she promised her grandmother when her grandma passed the story on to her that she would get this out there. And, yeah, it really, it's a good feeling. And I think... I feel so connected to Lake Munga now, knowing its story, than before when I just knew it as this, you know, lake with swans on it. Mm. I mean, we always talk about truth-telling as a thing, right? But the opposite side of that is truth-listening. Mm -hmm. Like hearing, being able to listen to the truth and absorb it. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a saying, I'll probably paraphrase it, but um, it goes something like, the truth to an open-minded person is like water for them if they were dying of thirst in the desert. The truth to a closed-minded person is poison. So you've got to be able to open your mind and your heart 
I'll, I'll add to that saying, your heart, you've got to be able to open your mind and your heart first before you're able to hear the truth properly. And my dad always says, what, what truth-telling? We've been telling the truth for 200 years. You might just haven't been listening. You know, so truth-telling is this thing, but, you know, the next thing down the track is truth-listening and hearing the truth and actually letting it affect you. And I think that's why we're, we're leaving the show up the way we do. We want that truth to be heard and felt and I know that each and every audience member, after that chat around the fire, is switched on and open-hearted. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Would you like to add to that? No? Would I like to Would you like to add anything? Maybe Denise might. To that? Um, um, I don't know. No, I guess um, you know, all of you have uh, written and spoken and talked and collaborated around very visible landmarks around Western Australia. You know, they are places we've all been to. Um, what legacy would you like? You know, what clues, what little kind of, you know, bird seeds can people pick up when we go? Because it really is invisible. We could visit any of your, the lakes that you write about and talk about and, and not know this unless someone has managed to pick up a book or been lucky enough to hear you speak and, and is forever transformed. Um, we talk about, we've had interesting conversations during this symposium about memorialisation and its benefits and its, you know, is it destructive or is it constructive to memorialise? Because over the last 100 years, 200 years of colonisations, we've, we've sort of inadvertently memorialised the wrong histories. We've also memorialised histories of people that we shouldn't have that have been collected by the people whose faces, you know, they're the wrong people shown next to the objects that shouldn't be in these cages. So memorialisation has pluses and minuses. But, you know, Papi and Ian, you've... Part of your social impact campaign is memorialisation in a very physical way. Um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, what you want to leave behind? I think we don't know yet. I think it was just when um, when we heard Dolan tell that story, Ian said, "Look, my first thought is we need to have a memorial," and the elders all supported that idea. But we've got no idea what that memorial would look like or be and it'll be a big conversation with a lot of people to figure that out. Um, yeah, but it's been great. The We've had several people from town of Cambridge come to the show and they're all really supportive, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And like I said before, you know, those, those councilmen and council people that have come from Cambridge, I can tell it really hit them in the heart. You know, they have tears in their eyes and stuff like that. So the effect that one show can have on one person can make big change. And so we're excited by the fact that we've got local town and Buria mob when it comes to making key decisions for memorials in our show and being able to see it and just change a mind like that and that wheel gets rolling and that ball gets rolling and then eventually it gets bigger and bigger. And I'm hoping that areas such as Rotnest the possibilities for that kind of thing to happen will increase. And like Siska said, we're not there yet. We've got a lot more things and a lot more minds to change. And we, we speak about arts and, um, you know, performance being a key ingredient to making those changes. And I believe that strongly as a performer, as a cultural man. I believe that the performing arts makes a huge difference 
in making big change around the world and for my people here. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Denise? I might say something. Um, I guess in relation to your question about what would you say to the marketing department about telling these stories, I just think people have a much deeper and more meaningful connection with a place when they know more of its stories. I mean, I certainly do. And I think that can only be a good thing, really. If you're trying to encourage people to connect with your place, you want to give them as many stories as you can, as many of the different shades of what's happened. And um, I just think that it just creates a, a much richer meaning and that that's really important. Mm. What memorialisation would you like to see around some, you know, site-specific memorialisation is possible around that your book is so full of stories, I'm not sure where one would even start? Yeah. I mean, I guess the traditional way is to put up a sign with some information and maybe someone's story. I think, you know, there's, there's different... There's so many different styles, aren't there? You can have a, a kind of art interpretation of some aspect of the story... You can, yeah. I don't really have a strong view. I'd, I think the stories are the strongest thing. Um, and so I would want to somehow get the stories out. But whether it's a sign or whether it's a website or whether it's an app or whether it's an artistic interpretation or, you know, performance like you guys are doing, I don't feel strongly about, you know, the different ways. Ian and Poppy, um, I'm interested in your next iteration of Gallup and the virtual reality um, potential last Invisible Ink. Um, we had a wonderful filmmaker called Lynette Walworth join us and, and talk about the potential of virtual reality to create new worlds and alternate universes where multiple possibilities exist and 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 she likened it um vr actually as um you know she likened it to a much more traditional first nations form of storytelling because it is you know it's, it's kind of hovers and looks down and, and is much more in the round um could you talk a little bit about that Go on. You. Um, yeah i think when we so the gala performance at the lake is for 15 people a night and we know that it works but we don't have the resources to do that, you know, so that everyone in Perth can go through. Um, and there's been so much demand from education department, from Frio dockers, from all these people that are like, <laughs> we really, really want to come, no more tickets, come, come, come. So at the moment we've um, written a script, uh, it's almost at that like lock-off point where we've condensed a 90-minute theatre show into a 10-minute virtual reality work. And the benefit of virtual reality and the reason that we were drawn to it is that you feel like you're at the lake. So you have that connection to that place. Um, and, yeah, the lake is a huge storyteller in this. So that will be launched this year, later this year. No, nothing more to add. I mean, I'm excited by it and it is the future, you know. It's like a lot of kind of generations are starting to kind of grab hold of this technology that is just developing and developing as each generation goes. So um, I'm excited by virtual reality and where it can go and 
the possibilities that it holds for a lot of the stories that need to be told. So, yeah, I'm excited. Mm. Um, could we maybe just have a, a small break? Because I'm interested in um, the audience's reflections on this, not just from this session, but from everything we've heard this morning, and Mon, from your and Len's incredible presentation about place names and, you know, this idea that many of us who tell stories in marginalised spaces have of, of dual consciousness, that we walk in two worlds and our physical surroundings need to reflect that. Um, Ten things to see differently is really a prompt um, to the community... Um, to, you know, not just see Perth as, well, I can see Wham, I can go to Agua, I can go to Rottnest, I can go to Lake Monga, but, you know, um, particularly in these COVID times where we are place-bound, um, you know, how can we relook at our local landscapes in different ways? I'm really interested in sort of, you know, hearing from you and maybe if you could spend the next 10 minutes or so on your own or with your partner talking about, you know, where you come from, um, what you know about your local lakes, which sites are you interested in knowing more about, um, and perhaps um, panellists with your incredible expertise, um, you know, we could all just sort of, you could circulate and we could talk and maybe even make a list of some places you would like to find out more about and see if the panel knows more about. So it's 25 past and I think if we can do, do that for about 10 minutes, um, that would be awesome and then we can all report back. a bit of the colonial history around Manning Lake. But I have learned quite a lot about Bibra Lake, and that's because of environmental activism. And, you know, so people came down and they told about stories of their area and, you know, the Noongar birthing area. And there was so much to learn about that area around the lake that I felt really connected to that place. And it was, you know, also something really to fight for because those stories were so present in our minds. So, yeah, I think environmental activism can really get people to know, um, you know, what's around their backyards and, and just beyond. And how much information have you found from sort of site-specific signage versus sort of information you've had to seek out on your own? Um, Um, yeah, well, it's interesting because I work for City of Coburn now and I've been helping out with some interpretation panels that they're working on for Manning Park. So um, I didn't do the research. I'm just kind of really helping them pull them together. Um, so there will be a, a lot more signage there soon. <laughs> but I'm not sure if it's going to have... I haven't, I haven't seen a Noongar name for the lake. And I have been looking at quite a few early maps of that area... And it's often not actually even marked as a lake. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Who else? Hi, uh, thank you very much. Uh, what made me think very on, early on is I'm a high school teacher and um, the healing that you obviously do and go through and then wondering about my classroom where 
they, they may not be ready to listen. They may not have warmed up, you know, those listening skills. And, and then also just how to put them, the stories out there so that kids, like a, a wide variety of kids can understand and access and the different resources. I don't know, I was just, it set my mind off thinking about how to approach it maybe in different ways. Yeah, it was handy what you said about five-minute videos are good. Made me start thinking, okay, cool, the VR is good, but for schools maybe also having a five-minute video that helps teachers talk about this stuff would be good. Um, when we were just chatting before, I was just uh, thinking about Wadjamup and thinking about the experience at Gallup because I was lucky enough to, to get a ticket in and, um, and share that gentle approach that you both spoke about that they really did take us through this kind of fun, in fact, if I use that word, when we're talking about a massacre, it doesn't sound, but it was. It was fun because we got to dance and sing and even me, which is not good for anyone. <laughs> but it was, it was lovely. And then we hit this really important story that you knew was coming and all the layers in between. And when you, you really um, shared about Wajmup um, really honestly, and thank you because it's hard to do that sometimes. But the opportunity for us to learn about Wajmup in a similar way, and we're working in Fremantle with Len Collard and the city of Fremantle at the moment on Aboriginal place names, which is, is automatically got those connections. Um, I, my mind starts to wonder of how can we connect, you know, uh, what you've already done um, with the other bits of research that have been done and bring that to life you know, using the arts. I think the arts are, are obviously in such a fabulous way to share that story. But we can't go on um, existing with Wajamup silence in the way that we do. I don't want to go back there anymore. And, um, and that's not... I don't think that's the answer either. I think that the, the answer is in finding ways to platform the stories by the voices of the people who have the right to tell their stories. Yeah. This thing. Um, yeah, so we have the websites alwayswatchmap.com. Um, so there's a couple of videos on there. Um, I think I mentioned that they were on YouTube as well, so they're very easily uh, shareable. And we also did the partnership with um, Google Arts and Culture, which is like a little kind of snapshot, and it's not the whole website history, which can be a lot of information for um, like a high school student, say. But um, I think that Google Arts exhibition is a really good one because it shows the um, men that were in prisons there, like photos with some quotes by them and a, a bit of stories as well. So um, I think anything you can do to find um, just like a, a human story and um, listen to the Aboriginal voices of the place, that's, I think, what what lasts and what stays with you the most rather than just reading like a list of, of dates and history and like this building is, you know, so-and-so or seen a sign. I think um, when the, everyone was talking about the stories um, being the most important, I think that was, yeah, yeah, my find. Um, when I was a kid, my favourite museum was called Museum of Moving Image because they had actors at the museum who would like 
dress up as a cowboy and teach you how to act on a Western set or you got to be a newsreader and with them. And I really think that's such a great way to learn stuff, just not just reading words and looking at pictures or even videos, but just having another human there doing activities. And I know heaps of awesome performers that the museum could employ to do those kind of things. Yeah, I think adding on to that, it's about creating a experience and, and a connection and an emotion attached to what is being taught. So if we're in regards to history and museums, they definitely have the potential to step up and kind of create more of a immediate emotional experience rather than an intellectual kind of, oh, yeah, I'm going to remember that in 20 years. No, because you're not really. I, I, some of the museum visits that I've had, you know, you go there, but it's very intellectual as a kid. And you're 10 years away, you kind of, it inspires you, but not really, because you don't remember the feeling behind it. And so that's where I think that there's a, a link missing. It needs to be emotional. It needs to have a feeling. And we speak about performing arts doing that and creating that. Yeah. Uh, when I was a, a, a kid, I, I moved over from Canberra uh, and got to got, got to Perth. Like uh, I, I was about ten. Um, it was really strange coming over here. A completely different landscape. Complete. It was an alien environment uh, for me. Um, uh, and settled in sort of uh, in, in eventually in, in forest field. And I used to go walking up in the uh, in the hills along the escarpment uh, from forest field up to Lismurdy and then across to Kalamunda. And uh, and it is sort of became a bit of a, a ritual of sort of heading up and uh, and walking along and uh, and getting a sort of a, a panoramic view of the entire sort of Perth region. You can see all the way out to, to Rottnest. Um, and uh, and I I've never known or, or, or taken the, the the effort to actually find out about any of that 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 land there. It's it's a I think it's state. Forest or state park. Um, there's a, a uh, Ian. Um, Ian was telling tell me about Mundy. Um, so there's a Mundy regional regional park, and uh, and so Ian That's told it. me. Do you know who Mundy is? Yeah, I've, I've no, no idea. No, yeah. Um, uh, so he, he he told me is is one one of the uh, one of the Nungai elders. Is that right? One of the Wajak leaders. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Okay. So the and we spoke about like dual names and. What, what a Noongar name holds. And um, like Shaheen said, it was um, Uncle Len coming and speaking a little bit about your names before and stuff like that. So I think his point of view is kind of what I share in my opinion is, yes, we can have dual names, but the meaning behind that Noongar name needs to come with it and the history and the power that it holds. It's not just a Noongar word. So a lot of people go, yeah, great, Monday regional park but they have no clue who Mundy is and that's okay brother now you know you yeah. know so um, it, it, it needs it needs that do you know do you know whether he has an association with, with that place was that was is, a, is it named there for a reason for or? his area yeah so oh, I right. think because of that reason we got Yellow Gonga and yeah so in the 1800s there they had specific areas that they looked after and oh. traveled around with their certain tribe or family that yeah. they looked after. So th there was many others, Mijiguru, Yalagonga, and you'll, you'll notice these names 
around the area of Hearth. And, and some people have that knowledge behind what that name is and who it is. Um, and like Sister said, it's those who kind of really understand that there is digging to do. Who was that guy? Who was that name? You know, we've got Jagen Square now and people are asking the bigger question, who was Jagen? Um, so it, it comes with the change. When we make the name change, we bring that history with it. And I guess it's also important to bring women's names and women's histories into those stories too. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks very much. The complexity of the processes which we're um, engaging here um, can't be underestimated. And so those, those sign making or bilingual sign making um, processes and how they're contextualized in the larger histories are um, also being done elsewhere in the world and, the, and having opportunities for exchange I think is really important. Not to compare histories necessarily, um, or to simplify cultures, but to learn from one another and about your mistakes. My, um, I'm doing a project in South Africa and I've been working a lot there in the past five years. And there are so many connections and, and opportunities for sharing. We're talking about Robben Island, obviously, um, and the similarities there. And one of the biggest problems uh, is how tourism has picked up indigenous histories and then fetishized them and that's taken, I mean, this is obviously an opportunity in, in um, Rotnest is that it's like, okay, we can, we can earn money from indigenous histories. So it's like you can sell them that idea in order to memorialize it there and, and create museums, but then it's not necessarily getting what you want, right? So there's so many overlaps and opportunities for learning through multiple indigenous histories throughout the world as well. I don't know where I'm, what my point is, so I'm just going to stop talking now. <laughs> Which is actually, hi, uh, thank you so much. That was really great to hear about all the projects. Um, following on your point, um, I think it is uh, one, an opening emerges for storytelling. Uh, there is an assumption that stories or telling the stories is good in itself. And, and I think, um, you know, the, the opening could also be used and, and utilised and abused. Um, and then, you know, so we can feel good about we told the story. Um, so I just perhaps some comments about, you know, when those openings occur and there is a moment of healing, for example, that happened that, um, you know, in, in that space of... Um, Intimacy. That it, uh, what I hear from that experience that there's 15 people had a moment of intimacy, and that was very special. And how, from that point, or perhaps a book in which you told the stories, how from that point um, could could be utilised in a way that it is it's, it goes the reverse and continues to perpetuate this narrative in which really structural whiteness is um, the only knowledge that really it's the valuable one and the others are continue to be peripheral knowledges. Sorry, my question wasn't very clear, but, or was it? <laughs> yeah, I was trying to soak it in and... How do we go back? Oh, 
How could it go bad? Yeah, How I could guess. what go bad? Yeah, or oh, oh, the risks. The risk, I guess, when there is an opening, mm -hmm. that the stories are told, and then this, those stories could be used and misused. You, you mean like um, stories being appropriated in yeah, a way? Yeah, appropriated. Like um, or, or, or just the, the notion that, oh, we told that story, we don't need to revisit it or go any further. Or, you know, now we know about the lake. You know, we know that there was a massacre on the lake and that's all there is to know. I think there's... That's currently where some of these stories are at. Is and, and, and a lot of the language and a lot of the words that we're using is... It just ends with the knowledge. But the change needs to come. So, yeah, there is the risk that, that people would kind of just accept it and just kind of go, well, that's it, done. Um, but but I feel like within you know projects that we're doing and connections that we're making with the museum and other mob, that further change comes, and that's for us to decide. And for those who are really passionate about that, we can inform people that that's what we're doing. But they don't they they choose whether they want to help us or not. They can go home and back to their lives. That's okay. Um, so. I'm not sure really what much more I can do because, you know, my passion, I'm clear on my passion and what I want to do. Um, and I know you might here sitting listening, but what are you going to do once you walk away? You know, it's just up to you. you. You've obviously got lives to live and other passions that you hold dear that you want to you wanna focus on and that's okay. Um, same like these mob up here sitting next to me. You know, we've got these these different things that we're passionate about, but they all hold a similar feeling. Um, so that's where I'm at, I think. hope I answered your question. Anyone else? Can I make a that? comment too? I guess um, one person who reviewed my book said he thought it focused on positive stories more than negative stories. And that was a bit of a deliberate choice on my part because there's so much negative history out there and... I kind of wanted to show the strength and the joy um, and there is some of the hard stuff in there too but it's not kind of the main focus. And I guess as a historian but probably as anybody telling a story you make choices about which stories you tell and which stories you don't and how you approach the stories you tell. And I guess there's, you know, in that choice, you know, it's a person of, of my time telling, you know, and then another person in a different time or... Another person now might tell a different story, I might tell it in a different way, and maybe there just has to be so many of us telling the stories that it's, it's kind of people kind of listen and hear what they want to hear or take, take something from the range of different stories. Something that, that really kind of stuck with me from one of the audience's feedback was she was amazed at how Noongar people are so generous after everything that's happened, we are constantly trying and trying and opening our hearts and being generous. Where you look at, you only got to look at the, the rest of the world and how radical some of these other cultures are going against, you know, the, the thought of colonisation and what's happening. And so I feel and I still really believe to this day we are in a, a crucial point within Australia and Perth especially. We, we are truly living in a lucky part of the world. 
and not just because of coronavirus, but because we have the opportunity to be able to kind of share that generosity that our First Nation mob have. And, and I know there are some Noongars and some other mob that are quite radical in their thoughts and feelings and, and voices, and we need them people. We need them uncles and aunties who are shouting because otherwise, you know, we don't get that little bit of friction, that little bit of fear that is required when it comes to go, okay, we actually need to listen to some of these mob when, generos when the door opens for that generosity to happen, it's there. And so I'm, I'm using my avenue, which is generosity, but I know that there's, there's other ways. And it's about that. I wonder if I can make a comment. I'm one of the directors of the Museum of Freedom and Tolerance. And everything we do in this space is risky. So if you want to know what the losses are, what's the negative, there's lots. But we have to be active in it. We have to make change. And if you want to make change in this area in particular, there's sort of three tools. There's education. If you don't know there's a problem, people don't know there's a problem, they don't know the story, we've got to tell, it, tell them the story. The second is in law, and we've got to be active in law. And the third is in advocacy. When you talk about people got to shout, they've got to shout as well. But what we're in, in here is predominantly focused on education. So the first part of that is to tell the story in a way that people r really feel it, just as you guys are all doing, by personal uh, stories. And when, when you go into to schools and tell your story to them and you can see them and look in their eyes, they really feel it. And when you're giving them their personal experiences in your shows and, and performances, they, they really feel it. So we, we have to tell our stories in meaningful ways that people feel it the challenge is we know from statistics that that's actually not enough. We have to start there, we have to do that really well, but then we have to move people to make change. That's a really hard part. It's something that we'll be working on beyond my time in the museum but forever, trying to help people to change. But it starts with the stories, the risky personal stories, the risky um, art stories, but in every format, I think we have to explore every single format of help of uh, of education um, so I commend you all for everything you do and um, Lynn I, I sort of identify with you because my mother-in-law was a survivor of the Holocaust and she had altogether about eight years of torture and persecution and uh, deep lost all the family and when she came to Australia she couldn't tell the story I married into her family and I didn't know the story for many years. And then someone encouraged her to start telling it in schools and it tore her apart. She was depressed, post-traumatic stress disorder, really, really distressed for a long time. But over the years of telling it in schools, it was healing for her. She's passed away now, but she passed away really proud that she had the guts to tell it and to impact young people. So I, I want to say especially, I, I, I watched that, the pain and the difficulty of it, and I commend you for your bravery.
think that's a wonderful place to leave it. Um, and I think I can feel the energy in the room. Everyone just needs to sit for a while. And I think part of this journey is important to recognise it's long um, and there are no solutions, but to have the you know, honour of you speaking about your work and to have you listening um, you know, with such dedication. I think that's this active listening and active um, speaking is what we need to emulate as we go forward in our own lives. Um, Invisible Ink is just part of that journey and we're honoured to share it with this ma as many storytellers as we can. Um, we have packed today um, in a ridiculous fashion. For those still with energy, um, we have Michelle Brune, who is the creator and curator of the First Nations Gallery across the way, Nalankorp Wujirwan, starting a personal tour at 3.30, which will go for an hour with her reflections. And then for those who are really got a lot of energy, um, we're back here at um, 5.30 with the John Curtin Gallery talking. Uh, Michelle Brune has also just been appointed as their First Nations curator, talking about the Carol Up collection and, and really this, this journey of, of how we use um, art to make change and how we use truth-telling to affect real change in the community going forward. So please join us or please take a rest and um, we'll see you back here soon.